Well, good morning, everybody. Like Pastor Vince mentioned, I do tend to go a little long, so yeah. It's okay. That's why we have a 10 o'clock service. I'll have you home before the Eagles start, but uh, <laughs> we're going to be looking at the, uh, the last chapter in the book of Jonah. It was in your bulletin a couple weeks ago, so you should have plenty of time to study ahead, and I'm sure you're already with all your notes on Jonah chapter 4. Um, but yes, we're going to talk about a plant, a worm, and a wind today in, in Jonah chapter 4. There's a lot going on there. Um, as I was preparing, I couldn't help but uh, thinking Jonah has a lot of ups and downs. He, he's on a real roller coaster of emotion, especially here in chapter 4. And I was thinking of uh, <clears throat> a movie, a book I read, actually, that they turned into a movie. It was called Unbroken. It's the story of uh, Louis Zamperini, who, who was uh, a very unique guy, but happened during World War II. Uh, he was actually an Olympic runner. Uh, he ended up uh, getting drafted into the military. I'm not even sure which branch. I think it was the Army, but uh, he was on an island in the South Pacific, uh, and uh, he was part of a, uh, a plane crew. Uh, they would do bombing missions normally, but they got a call that one of the American planes had gone down uh, in the Pacific. And of course, back then, they didn't have the technology that we have today to just be able to go and pinpoint through GPS the exact location. And so they, they would send out search parties and they would do these grids over large patches of just ocean. And that's what uh, Louis and his crew went out on. And as they were out on the rescue mission searching for this down plane, their own plane had mechanical failure and it crashed into the middle of the Pacific. And you think, oh boy, that's pretty bad. Well, you know, uh, out of the, the crew, three members survive. They get into these two life rafts, and they think, all right, you know, a couple of days, and, and they'll find us. Uh, and only to come to find out that the people who found, well, not the people, but what found them was tiger sharks. Uh, their life rafts, you know, imagine how small that would feel in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, not near any visible land at all, and, and to feel that bump, what was that? <laughs> bump, you know, and these tiger sharks circling constantly. And they ended up being in these rafts for 28 days uh, with, with very little food and hardly any water. And then as they're, you know, just without any cover too, the sun just beating down on them day after day in their weakened state. And then they, they hear faintly propeller, right? A motor, an engine of, of, a, of a plane going by. And how excited they get and they, they jet up and they're, they're trying to, using mirrors to get the plane's attention. And we, we're saved, we're saved, only to find out this plane has Japanese flags on <laughs> you know, the wings, and it's, uh, it's a single-engine plane, which so is strange. How could this be out here in the middle of the ocean like this? And the Japanese plane comes in to take a look, and, of course, he realizes that they're Americans, and he begins to open fire with the machine gun turret uh, from, from the cockpit. And now these guys think that they're saved, and now they have to decide which is worse, the bullets or the sharks. And they make a decision, rather take our chances with the sharks because the bullets are going are gonna to cut us in half. They dive into the water. Uh, plane goes by a couple times, fills their rafts full of holes, and they were able to get back in the raft. And just the, the up and down of, of this man's life story, that's only the beginning. I don't want to ruin it for you. If you've never read the book or seen the movie, I recommend it. It's actually a Christian story. Louis ends up finding faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and using his life to share that message uh, at the end of his life. But th what happens in between is, is remarkable and really a work of God. But it just, I, I couldn't help but, you know, make that comparison between the, the, the great ups of thinking you're rescued to the downs of being with the sharks. And I don't know if this year or this week has been like that for you, 
but I think we can all relate to those times where it's like, well, what's the better option, right? The bullets or the sharks? And I think Jonah felt that way. See, where we find Jonah here in chapter 4 is Jonah is angry. And even worse than that, he, he's angry with God. And he tells him about it. He's very honest. Before we judge Jonah too harshly or, or dismiss him, perhaps we should take a moment on this New Year's Eve and, and examine our own hearts and see if there's any anger, disappointment, bitterness, distrust towards God in our own hearts. See, I think we're not honest with ourselves and we're certainly not honest with God. And he's a big God. He can handle our big emotions, even if they're not good emotions, right? All he really wants is honesty because like Jonah, once we're honest, perhaps God can begin to do a work in our heart and change us closer to his image like he's going to do with Jonah. Chapter four is probably not a chapter that you're taught in Sunday school most of the time. We all know about the fish. Very few of us know about the worm. And so we're gonna take a look at that this morning. So if you would, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, that Jonah's story is so much more than a fish, so much more than a man. Lord, it, it, it's, it's a pursuit of God to us as human beings, a God who's not content to leave us as we are, but who constantly wants to take us deeper, to give us more of himself. So Lord, I pray for each heart that's here this morning that we are open to receive what your Holy Spirit has to give to us today. We pray this in your name, amen. Let's dive in here. Chapter, one, uh, chapter four of Jonah says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, could, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's how it ends, with, with that question just hanging there. And we look at Jonah and we go, Geez, Jonah reminds me of Macaulay Culkin at Home Alone. Like, what a brat. You know, you deserve to be left home alone, right? That's, that's kind of how I feel every time I see that movie. Like, you, you, I would have left you there too, you little brat. Um, and it's a good thing I'm not God, right? Because I would have left a lot of us, myself included, behind a long time ago. But Jonah is remarkable to me because God is so compassionate 
and so patient and so calm and kind with Jonah. It starts out, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. If we translate that literally, it would actually say, but it was a great evil to Jonah, and he was filled with a heat anger. Have you ever been filled with a heat anger? You don't have to tell me about it, but I've seen some of you driving on a 295 <laughs> filled with that. Not me, I'm just taking note. The Lord has given me that gift to drive around and take note of who's doing that. But that word, it's, it's kind of two themes coming together. We've had that gadol, right? Gadol means great. And Jonah was filled with a great evil. And we've talked about a great fish. There's talked about uh, all through uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. There was a great fish. There was a great wind that came. There was a great storm that arose. There was a um, great calm after the storm. The great fish swallowed Jonah. There was a great awe of God. All these great, 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 great city of Nineveh. And, and that's, we're, we're supposed to be reminded of that again. But here there's this great evil. And, and evil's another theme that runs throughout Jonah because God at the beginning said the evil of the city of Nineveh has risen up before me. I'm sorry, I don't know if that's me or just the mic. Yeah, sometimes you get a bad mic. So if it keeps going bad, I'll just turn it off and shout. Um, but it, it was this evil, and the Hebrew word is ra'ah. And now Jonah himself is filled with a great evil. And evil is not the sense that we think of it of good versus evil. Uh, similar, but in, in this case, it's Jonah was filled, like he, he had this displeasure, this discontent. This complete dissatisfaction, and, that, and that's what was evil inside Jonah. But what was this great evil that Jonah was thinking about, right? And, and it wasn't that Nineveh was just Gentile that, that Jonah had a problem with. It's that Jonah thought that Nineveh itself, he considered them to be evil, right? And, and how, it's just, it's not fair. God, you're not fair. You're not bringing justice that I think that you should bring to these evil people. And more than that, these evil people are being used to destroy my own people who you're supposed to love through your covenant love. And Jonah had this idea that God wasn't being fair. And in Jonah's heart and mind, he would rather be dead than to deal with God who wasn't fair. And I ask you to examine your heart. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe as you sit here this morning, there's a little bit of that in your own heart. And what I tell you is, it's not that it's okay that it's there, but it's okay to admit that it's there. And once you bring it to the light, God could then do a work in that evil that, that may be present. So God's not bringing justice. So what does Jonah do? I like this. It says in verse 2, it says, he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? He basically said, Lord, I, I told you. Right? So now we finally in chapter 4 kind of get an idea of what was going on in chapter 1 when it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah and Jonah fled down to Joppa to flee the presence of the Lord. Right? This is when we finally get that clue in. Jonah said, you told me to go and I knew what you were going to do. Jonah's mad at God for being who God is. We're too sophisticated for that, right? <laughs> you ever been mad at God because he's God? Because he's sovereign? And he doesn't always fill you in on all the details of what he's choosing to do in your life. It's not going according to the script. Jonah has the wrong attitude and he's selfish, but he's honest. 
And I believe God wants us to be honest. He doesn't care if we're cleaned up, if we're polished, if we have the right words to say. He just wants us in all of our sinful honesty to present ourselves to him. That's why the Psalms are so beautiful because David is just filled with all these emotions and he pours them out to God. See, I like the fact that Jesus hung out with fishermen because fishermen, they don't clean their fish before they catch them, right? They clean them after they catch them. Right? Let Jesus clean you up, but bring your prayers to Jesus, right? And Jonah, of course, is right back to where it all started, right? It's just Jonah and God, this rebellious, stubborn prophet and the Lord Yahweh. And isn't that what it always boils down to? Every individual and God. When, it, when it's all cut away, when it gets down to the basics, it's you and God. And all God wants to know is, will you obey me? That's all I'm concerned about. Right? And if you're not willing to obey me, will you let me work in you until you are? That, that's what God desires to do in us. That's the whole human project, really. That's, that's his desire, is to make us into his image. Right? But whenever we are righteously angry, we really have to examine, if I'm righteously angry, I should be angry at the things that makes God angry. And Jonah really thought he was. But we sometimes we get so caught up in, in God's vengeance and his wrath and his punishment, and we want God to punish everyone. But, but if we follow that back far enough, we would have had to include ourselves in that wrath and punishment of God. And now that we've received it, we want it, but we want God to get everybody else for acting exactly the way we acted and perhaps still do, even with the grace of God. Whenever we are unrighteously angry, we're actually angry at God for being God. We get angry with the will of God when things don't turn out as we desire. We start out with a pity party, right? Well, it didn't happen the way I wanted it to, right? And that's what's happening to Jonah here, which very soon after can lead into depression, where it's even hard to get out of bed in the morning. And if we let it and we allow it and we stop going to God, that depression can turn into despondency, where we check out mentally, emotionally, from relationships, from going to church, from being around people who we know represent God. And if that is left unchecked, that can lead to despair where we can't see anything good anymore. And unfortunately, because we start to give in to lies and making agreements with lies that come straight from the pit of hell and from the father of lies, and his goal is what? To rob, to kill, and to destroy. If we start believing enough of the devil's lies and agreeing with them, it can very soon lead us to a place where we think the only option is for us to die. We may not attempt to take our own lives, but we stop living as if we care about it. And that's not where God wants us to be. It's not where jo uh, God wants Jonah to be, and he's trying to get Jonah out of it. But Jonah, of course, he accuses God of being God. He says, God, I knew, I knew it. You are gracious, a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God, you're wonderful. That's what I knew about you. That's why I wouldn't go to Nineveh, because I knew you'd be merciful to them. Rotten, stinking God. Like, who does he think he is, right? We want his mercy. We want his compassion. We want his grace. But we begrudge it to others. And I think partly it's because we don't truly understand our own sin nature, but we also don't understand the compassion of God. And this description Jonah uses of merciful and slow to anger, it's straight from the book of Exodus, chapter 34. If you remember there, Moses is kind of having this thing with God where he's, he says, God, I see your works, 
but I want more. I, I, show me your glory, God. I want more of you. I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you. And God says, Moses, if I reveal my glory to you, you can't handle it. In your human capacity, you just can't handle it. But what I'll do is I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to allow my glory to pass by you. And the tail end of it, I'm going to let that reveal to you. And as he's doing that and passes by Jonah, these are the words he uses to describe himself. And this description of God comes from the mouth of Yahweh himself. And nine times in the Old Testament, this is quoted to and referred to. So Jonah, he knows who God is intellectually. Jonah's problem is experientially, he doesn't understand at all. And I think that's true for a lot of us, at least from time to time. We know a lot about God, but when it comes to experiencing him, we struggle. And that's okay, and I think God wants us to know it's okay to struggle, but be honest in your struggling. And so Jonah says, I knew you'd do it. They don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve your compassion or your forgiveness, right? And, and I don't think Jonah understood, you know, if it wasn't for jo jo God's compassion and mercy, he'd still be in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the Mediterranean. And what we don't understand is what we deserve is not God's grace and his mercy. What we deserve is his wrath and his punishment. As a sinner, I deserve separation from God forever, and we call that hell for eternity. And it tells us all about that in Ephesians 2. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to quickly run through some things that tell us in Ephesians 2, right? It says that uh, you were dead, actually, in your trespasses and sins. You were enemies with God. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what, he doesn't just stop with saving us, because in verse 10 it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God doesn't just save us so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's, that's just a teeny, teeny part of why he saves us. He saves us because he wants us to be in fellowship with him now. And he wants us to live under those good works which he has prepared for each of us individually. He has different works for each of us, but he has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them now. That's why God has saved us. And look at the Lord's response, right? Jonah here is, you know, life isn't worth living. Just kill me now, right? I don't know if he's serious, but actually part of me... I think he does. I think there's a deep pain and an anger in the heart of Jonah. And, and it, it's pouring out of him. I, did some of these Assyrians do something personally to Jonah or his family? You know, I've had the opportunity to go to uh, Iraq two times on, on different missions trips. And while I was there, I was with the Kurdish people. And if you know anything about the Kurdish people in Iraq, they were the people that Saddam Hussein, they hated them. He hated the Kurdish people because ethnically they were different than the rest of the Iraqis. And he treated them not even as second class, but as subhuman. And he sent poison gas into his own cities, into his own territory to test out on those people. Not only that, he had imprisoned them for years. And the city I was in was called Sulaymaniyah. And in Sulaymaniyah, there was um, a prison. They call it Saddam Prison. Just turn me off. I'm just going to lose it. They had it Saddam Prison. And in this prison, they um, tortured 
Saddam had prisoners in there for years. And, and now, as Saddam, of course, was already defeated by the time I, I went over there, they turned into a museum to remember the pain and the torture. And as you talk to people, I don't think there was a family in Suleimania that wasn't affected by the persecution of Saddam. And, and, and there's, a, there's a pain and an anguish that those people know that, that's different than and almost any other people except perhaps maybe the Jewish people through the Holocaust. But I don't know what Jonah went through, but I know his pain was deep and it was real. When he asked God to take his life, I believe he was serious. But I, I, I look at this answer from God in verse 4, and the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And actually, if we translate that right, he's actually saying, is doing good displeasing to you? And he leaves the question unanswered. And of course, Jonah doesn't answer it here, but I believe God is asking us the same question. When we don't understand what he's doing, it's okay to ask God questions, but then we should be prepared for his answers. And sometimes his answers are just questions back to us. Is it, are you angry because I'm doing good if I'm following my nature? So let's look at the next few verses here. It says in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Right? So actually, uh, God's trying, and even in that question, just like those verses uh, Pastor Vince read with you earlier from Genesis chapter 4, it's when, when, when Cain and Abel were making their sacrifices to God, God was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice, but he was with Abel's, and it says it made... Cain full of anger. It's the same word being used, that heat anger. And, and we're very intentionally supposed to think of Cain when we read this. It's in the book of Jonah, so we think back to Cain, because what did God say to Cain? It, same question. Cain, like, are, are you angry because I'm asking you to do good? Like, you, you, you can change. You, what I'm trying to attempt to do with you is to get you to see is I'm not telling you I've not accepted you forever. I'm saying you need to follow my prescribed way to be accepted, and then I will accept you as well. But Cain couldn't handle it. He wanted to do things in his own way. He wanted to do it contrary to God. And God said, look, sin is crouching at your door waiting to devour you, but you must master it, which indicates that there's a way to master sin. And the way is, Jesus Christ came to die and then to live inside of us because he has mastered sin and he's given us the ability to conquer sin in our lives, but we have to go to God when we feel that sin crouching at our door waiting to devour us. But Jonah, he's not ready to do that yet. So he goes outside the city and it says he went east of the city. Where did Cain go? He went east of Eden. We're supposed to be picturing that in our heads, right? So he goes and he builds this booth and the Jews still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles today, the Feast of Sukkot or Sukkot, right? And it's this time of year, it's usually at the end of September, beginning of October, where they go out and they build these little, I wouldn't even call them tents or, or shelters. They're these little booths that they make out of branches and sticks, and they're supposed to be able to look at the stars. It's supposed to remind them of the time where they left um, Egypt and were heading to the promised land, and they were in the wilderness, and God was providing for them, as much as giving them food every morning, giving them water every day, and giving them protection from their enemies. And, and the idea is this, you build this Sukkot, this dwelling, this tabernacle, if you will. 
And, and, and the Jews still celebrate that today. And it's actually, it's a seven-day event. It's an extended Sabbath. And there's Eden imagery all around it. The branches are supposed to come from the, of a, a tree, a fruit tree that has been planted near rivers of water. These Eden images are all over the place. And, and during Sukkot, there's this time where it's supposed to be extended hospitality for the strangers, for the outsiders, right? The ingathering of the nations. And that idea of Sukkot, when, when the temple was built, when, when the tabernacle was set up, God said, my presence will dwell with you, will Sukkot. It's the same word. And Jesus even said, I am going to prepare a, a, a place, a dwelling place, a Sukkot, a place where God's presence dwells. So God's presence and these Eden images and the ingathering of people are all kind of being put together in here. And, and not only that, but in the Messianic age, Isaiah talks about it, Amos talks about it. When, when Jesus comes back to physically be on the earth, there's going to be a time where all the nations are gathered to Jerusalem, to Zion. It says Zion will be a Sukkot, will be this booth, will be this dwelling place. And, and and all will come and be in God's presence together. And all this is going on in Jonah chapter 4. Isn't that awesome? It's going on so much that I, I'm using up all my time and I still got a lot to go. So let's keep going. So Jonah builds this booth and he does it what? So that he can have shade over his head. And, and uh, God doesn't want us to create our own shade. He, he wants to provide the shade for us. So what does God do here in verse 6? Now the Lord God appointed a plant. And made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So look at that. God sends a plant. And this is not just some normal plant, right? This is a miracle kind of a plant. And he doesn't do it because Jonah deserves it. As a matter of fact, Jonah is, is the least deserving of God's grace and his mercy. And that's what makes it God's grace. Because he gives it to us when we don't deserve it. If you feel like you deserve it, you're wrong. When you feel like you don't deserve it, open your arms and receive it because he wants to bathe you in it. That's who God is. And he's doing this to Jonah, even though he doesn't deserve it. What type of plant is this? We don't know. It gives a weird word here, and they call it a kikayon. It's, it's, uh, it's a Hebrew word that's not used anywhere else in the Bible, and it's, but it, there's a similarity. The only thing that's similar in that word, yon, is supposed to remind us of Jonah. And back in chapter 2, when it says that the whale, the great fish, vomited up Jonah, so I got to throw hurl out there one more time for you guys, right? The, when, the, when the whale hurled up Jonah, right, it says he he. He kicked him up. So Jonah's supposed to be reminded here uh, somehow, because Jonah's writing this down, that perhaps this is God's another way for God to save Jonah. And look at Jonah. It says he's exceedingly glad at the plant. The only time in the entire book that he's exceedingly glad is when his own comfort is being dealt with. Right? The entire city of Nineveh, from the least to the greatest, from the king to the lowest donkey, has repented in sackcloth and ashes, and they have been saved and spared by the God, by God. Jonah should be excited. He's the only one who knows the scripture, who knows the law, who knows the Torah. He should be in Nineveh teaching and discipling and praising God. Instead, he's, he's in a booth by himself outside the city waiting perhaps that God might still destroy it. And so God is not content. It says, though, I, I like that at the end of verse um, uh, five, it says, the Lord made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And actually it says that it might save him from his ra'ah, that God gave shade that he might deliver Jonah from his own evil. And that's what God desires to do in our hearts, folks. God is constantly trying to deliver us, to provide shade from us, from our enemies, from the enemy. But even if that evil arises from our own hearts, God wants to deliver us from that too thing is, he can't do it unless we allow him to. We have to invite him in that he might work. So just the same way that God appointed this plant in verse 7, it says he appointed a worm. 
This is not just ordinary worm. It's a monster hungry worm, right? It's the very hungry caterpillar, if you ever read that story. But this plant miraculously arose in a night, and it's no bigger of a miracle for this plant and for this worm than this great fish. There's all kinds of miracles happening in Jonah. Some are big, and we go, wow, isn't that great? Some are small, but they're just as great. God is working in your life, and maybe you don't see the miracle because you're looking for the big and you're missing the small. But God allowed this plant to come up to deliver Jonah from his discomfort. Now he allows the worm to come up because Jonah made an idol out of his plant. There was nothing wrong with the plant. It was Jonah's attitude towards the plant. And when God saw his attitude was wrong, he said, I got to take that away. And so just like the plant came up in a night, the worm came and destroyed the plant in a night. And it says again, look at Jonah. Boy, Jonah's like an Eagles fan here. He wants to die. He's excited. He's happy. He wants to die again. You know, Jonah's either an Eagles fan or a Lions fan. If you watched that game last night, it was very similar. It says, when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun arose, God appointed, now here's God appointing again, a scorching east wind. Man, God's appointing all kinds of stuff here. Now, worms in the Bible were a symbol, really, of death and destruction. The only real two main times we see them in the Torah is in uh, reference to manna. Manna was God's gracious provision of food for the Israelites. But if you took too much and tried to have enough for the next day, it said it would breed worms and stink. And then Deuteronomy, right before the people were going into the promised land, Moses is going to pass off the scene, and he gives them a list of blessings and cursings. Blessings if they obey God, and they remind us of Eden. If we obey God, all the blessings that come with Eden will be on Israel. But he said, but if you disobey me, things like worms will come and destroy your vine. And that imagery is supposed to provoke the mind of the Israelite who's reading this, but also our mind. Why does God put certain words and certain things and certain creatures in scripture it's constantly be pointing us back pointing us back why is that there but Jonah says of course right um, it's better for me to die than to live again in verse 8 Jonah Jonah's not a happy guy right it's better for me to die and what Jonah doesn't realize is he already has he's sunk to the bottom of the sea and God sent a rescuer to deliver him inside the belly of the whale. And then as he was given new birth and spit out on the dry land, Jonah was brand new. Now, if, if, if you believe the medical reports, he may have lost all his hair and had his skin bleached white, so he was an interesting creature, but he has been saved. He's been born again. And he doesn't, Jonah doesn't realize that God has given him not just a new lease on life, but a new kind of life. A new kind of life that's supposed to be about forgiveness and, and, and to return to Eden where we can have fellowship with God and allow that Eden life to dwell up in us so that we might then share it with others until that day where all things are restored and brought new as a new Eden will, will fall on this earth. And, and Jonah is not getting it. So God sends the plant, he sends the worm, and now he sends the wind. And this wind is a Horatiate wind. It's, it's a, I, again, I was, I was over in the Middle East, and it was very common for the daytime temperatures to be 110 degrees. Right? It's not like over here when it's 90 and you go outside and it's sticky. And you're, you go outside and you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. And you walk about 10 feet and you're like, I think I'm melting. Right? That's, that's kind of what the Middle East is like. And if, you don't, if you're not careful, like, you will die. The sun is so strong and so unfiltered, and, and, and the rock, anyway, it's hot. <laughs> you get the point. So Jonah's sitting there, and it's hot now, and he had the shade. It made him happy. Now the sun's beating down on him, and I feel you, Jonah. There's some days in August around here where I go, oh, God, I, this is not fit for man or beast out here. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Right? Jonah wants to die, and, and it's funny. That word, Horatiate wind, it has two meanings. One can be silent. The other is plow. 
I don't, I'm, listen, Hebrew's a weird language, but I think that wind was intended to plow up the fallow ground in Jonah's heart, but it's also supposed to point us back, and I'll let you do this study on your own, in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, the prophet Elisha, he flees from Jezebel, and he asks God the same thing, God, end my life because it's not worth living. And God comes to him two different times and asks him two different questions, but it then says that God appeared to Jonah. First, he sent a wind, right? But God's voice wasn't in the wind, and then he sent a fire, and it wasn't in the fire, and he sent an earthquake, and God's voice wasn't in the fire, but then he sent a still, quiet voice. And I think there's something to do with that in this Horatian wind that Jonah's supposed to hear. Not to mention... I'm going to go there. You don't have to. Psalm 121, it tells us this. We're not supposed to seek our own shade because Yahweh is supposed to be our shade. Psalm 121 verse 5 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. I like that. Kind of gives me a great comfort to know that our church is here in maple shade. <laughs> But God, what does God want Jonah to see in verse 9? But God said to Jonah, in a still small voice, I'm sure, again, the same question. Do you do well to be angry? And this time he adds, for the plant. Jonah, you had compassion and, and pity on this plant. Do you do well to be angry? Is, are you mad at me because I do what's right and do what's go, good? Jonah was missing the bigger picture of God's purpose. And he responded in a self-oriented way. And we do that, don't we? Jonah thinks it's evil because his distorted view of the world is where, where God's good is evil and his enemies finding mercy is evil to him. And, and this destruction of the vine is really a picture of what happened to the monarchy in Israel, right? They, they, they took their eyes off of God and, and many, many of the prophets, Ezekiel being one of them, talks about the withered vine that's going to occur because of their disobedience. But he also, it says here, Jonah, in verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And that's actually an exact copy of a phrase that's used in um, Deuteronomy 6 and Joshua 24, talking about the promised land. God says, I give you a land that you didn't work for, you didn't labor for it, you didn't plow the fields, you didn't harvest anything. I'm giving it to you. And again, God is trying to point Jonah towards that idea of I give and I take away. And, and I, first, guys, too, God is more concerned with my character and my comfort. He doesn't necessarily care how comfortable you are. As a matter of fact, many times, if you're gonna follow Jesus, he's gonna call us to be very uncomfortable. And Jonah couldn't see the benefits of his trial while he was still in them. But sometimes, guys, God puts us through hard and difficult experiences because he wants to teach us something new or greater about himself that we've never seen before. Did I say himself or ourself? Both. <laughs> God wants to teach us more about himself, wants to teach us more about ourself, and perhaps he's only doing it so that you can be a better comfort to someone else. He says, Jonah, you pitied the plant, right? All I can think of there is Mr. T, I'm sorry. I pitied a fool. Jonah pitied the plant. Might as well say it. We are all thinking it, right? So I pity the fool, but God doesn't say I pity the fool. God says, Jonah, don't you have pity on Nineveh the way that you pitied that plant? That word pity in Hebrew, it actually says move to tears. Enough compassion in your heart that you thought that plant deserved to be preserved because it brought comfort to you. Jonah, how much more do the people of Nineveh do you think they mean to me than that plant meant to you? And God is, and I don't believe God is meant, he's up there going, see, 
This is what I told you. I, I believe his voice is still. I believe it's small. And, and I believe the, this question ends the book because it, it's meant to hang there for, for everybody who would read it for the next 2,500 years. First of all, too, I, I believe Jonah's a real guy. Right? I don't believe this is some made-up story, a fable that the Hebrews put in their Bible to, to make us go, oh, that's a nice story. I believe Jonah's a real guy, and I believe he wrote this. That's how I know the Bible's true, because who would write this about themselves and stick it in the world's bestseller? <laughs> God doesn't hide the faults of his people because he wants us all to benefit and to learn from it. And that word he uses there, he says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? He uses that term again, but in a whole different way, in which there are more than 120,000 persons. In our, in our English, he makes it plural, but actually in Hebrew, it's singular. It's the word Adam, where we get Adam, the first man. There, there are there not more than 120,000 Adam? And again, back to Genesis. What did Adam, how did he screw things up, right? Him and Eve, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where they decided for themselves that they wanted to know and be like God, and it all got screwed up. And he says, the problem here, Jonah, is that there's 120,000 people in this city who don't know their right from their left, and, that, and that's a Hebrew idiom for they don't know the law, they don't know the Torah, because in the Torah brings life, and we're warned over and over to not stray to the left or to the right. So is he talking about just unbelievers, people who don't know God, and he considers them lost souls, or is he talking about actual children who don't know enough to know left from right? Choice is yours, but I, I think God is so compassionate that he cares about the individual life of even the smallest child. And he says, Jonah, you may not love the Ninevites, but would you at least have compassion on the little children? And Jonah, if not them, how about the animals, right? I, I'm not a big animal guy, folks. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't hate them. I'm just not a huge animal lover. But I know many of you are. And you know what? That's God's heart. Because God says, not one sparrow will fall to the ground without my knowledge. God is so compassionate. He's even concerned about these animals that might be destroyed in Nineveh if he decides to take the city out. And he leaves that question for Jonah. Jonah, are you willing? And this is a question we all need to answer. Are you willing to align your perspective with God's even if you can't see it? Are you willing to do that? Because that's what God wants to do. Because God is a God of compassion. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's what motivated our own salvation, God's compassion. And what does he want? He wants us to be like him. It's what should drive me. And so the question God is asking you today, and I think it's a good question as we are about to enter a new year for us to truly answer, am I willing to surrender? And perhaps you're here today, you've never surrendered your heart and your mind to Jesus Christ. And I say to you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can surrender your heart and mind to Jesus and have him take control. But beyond that, if you've been a believer, what is God calling you to? He is not content to leave you in your booth, in your shade, in your comfort. He wants you to go deeper. He's calling you further. Perhaps he's calling you to give something up. Perhaps he's calling you to start something new. Perhaps he's calling you to forgive someone in the past who has hurt you. Maybe he's calling you to give up some of your prejudices or preconceived ideas about who he is or how this world works or who is, in, is able to receive God's favor. I don't know what he's calling you to, but I believe he's calling. And he doesn't shout. He doesn't scream. He often does not send giant whales. 
but he will send his worms. He will send his shade, and he wants us to notice, and he wants us to hear. So will you resolve today, God, today I choose to surrender? Fill in the blank. It's up to you, right? I don't know your heart, but I tell you this, God does. And if you hear him gently knocking, who do you think that is? <laughs> it's not your own conscience. It's not Satan telling you, you need to listen to God. It's the Lord himself. He's present. He's alive. And he's real. I've gone long, so I might as well go a little longer. I got one story to finish up, and I didn't want to share this with you, and the Lord kept poking and prodding me and telling me, share it, share it. I don't want to share it because it's embarrassing and it's stupid. But you won't remember anything else I say, but you'll remember this stupid story. Because <laughs> it's about me and a stupid dog. All right? No, the dog's not as stupid as I am. My daughter Hannah and her husband Parker are here visiting this week from Michigan, and they have a dog. We were not a dog family. She decided to get a dog. So when she comes to visit, we're a dog family. All right? I tried to make my peace with good old Bentley, and, uh, you know, Bentley and I were getting along just fine until Christmas. Right? He was up on the counter getting some food off of the counter, and I went to pull him down, and... You know, he turned around, he snapped, and he, he bit my hand. Not, not hard, didn't draw blood, didn't break the skin, but it ticked me off. <laughs> and I said, you know what, Bentley? You're dead to me, right? From now on, like, you can be in my house. I'll let you be there. I'm not going to cause a problem, but we're not friends anymore. And so for the next couple days, I didn't speak to the dog. I didn't pet the dog. I didn't even go near the dog. Dog, you know, waiting for me. I could tell See, dogs are smarter than I think they are because he knew I was mad at him. Every time I saw him, he would kind of like, all right, he's mad at me still, and he would go away. And here's the thing. The Lord actually cares about my heart in this situation. I needed to forgive the stupid dog. And I didn't want to. But the Lord wouldn't let it go, and he kept knocking at my heart and said, you're going to be preaching on Sunday. This is what I'm dealing with in you this week. What are you going to do about it? And for a few days, I said, I ain't doing nothing about it. <laughs> and I went out into my booth in my shade, and I sat there. <laughs> but then the Lord reminded me. He said, you know, you might not love the dog, but you love your daughter, right? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> you want to have a relationship with her and your son-in-law, right? Yeah. Dog's part of the package, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? Don't ask me questions, God. <laughs> I had to go make peace with the dog. I have you know we're friends again. We're throwing balls. I was petting them. Everything's good. But here's, here's my point. Why do I tell you that? Not to embarrass myself, even though it does. God's concerned even about that little bit in your heart that's not right with him. Because if you could deal with that with him, he'll deal with the bigger things in your life too. And the more you let God deal with the little things in your life, the big things in your life, they're not so big anymore. God wants to work in us, to take us deeper, to take us further, to take us higher than we've ever been before. Will you let him? Let me pray for you. Most gracious God, Heavenly Father, thank you for stupid dogs. <laughs> thank you for worms, for winds. But thank you, Lord, that no matter what, you are unrelenting in your love for us, in your pursuit after us, in your desire to make us like you. But Lord, it's, it's not involuntary. We have, to, we have to agree to the process. 
So Lord, I pray for the stubborn hearts like mine that are here, that you would open them, you'd soften them, you'd fill them with your spirit and draw them closer to you, closer than they've ever been before. May, may 2024 be a year where Emmanuel Baptist Church, the, chur the church that's in the shade, that we would recognize your comfort, that we'd want more of it so that we might offer it to others. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.